Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, you could turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22 is where we're going to begin, or it's printed there, today's text on page 10 in your bulletin. This is one of those texts, if you decide to preach it, you better have some courage as a pastor, because... Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for you to open our hearts now as we receive this word in Jesus' good name. Amen. So last week I told you how at Christmas this year my dad sat uh, all of his kids and his grandkids, all 16 of the grandkids, down in our living room, and he told us a five-generation story of our ancestors, going back to my great-great-great-great-grandfather, James Wallace, and his wife, Jane. And it was through listening to that story uh, and watching these 16 grandchildren that are produced by that story, it was, it was seeing and hearing all of that, uh, and there were a lot of Christians in that story. It kind of prompted for me the big idea of this little mini-series that I'm doing called Households at War. And the big idea that was prompted in me is this. God, who designed gender, genders, man and woman, and designed generations generational fruitfulness, he restores these in Christ to serve his kingdom. God who designed genders and generations restores them in Christ to serve his kingdom. And what that means is then that godly manhood and godly womanhood and marriage and parenting, these are part of what we call spiritual warfare. The war between the kingdom of Jesus and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that we are told we wrestle with as the church. And Paul actually says what I've just said in his letter to the Ephesians, you'll remember from last week, because in the first half of Ephesians, Paul says something pretty mind-boggling. He says, God has seated you all with Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places above spiritual rulers and authorities. And I don't really know exactly what that means, but it means that somehow we in this life, in this world, as Jesus people, we share in the heavenly places, spiritually we share in his rule, in, his, in the exercise of his kingship. And then in the second half of the letter, Paul kind of gets practical with this, and he says what this means is we are wrestling as God's people, as Jesus people, we are wrestling 
not with flesh and blood, not with human beings. We are wrestling with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places over whom we are seated with Christ. And how do we do that wrestling? Well, he says we put on the armaments, or what he earlier in the, in the letter, talk, he speaks of the virtues and the practices, the armaments of this new self that Jesus has given us. So as we are putting on the ways, the virtues, the practices, the armor of this new self Jesus has given us, in putting off the old ways of our life in sin and the new, putting on these new ways with, we have with Jesus, we are wrestling spiritually. And we just started to consider at the end last week that putting on this new life that Jesus has given to us, putting on this new humanity that Jesus has given us, that includes our bodies. The new self does not pull you out of your body. The new self Jesus has given you is worked out in your body, your embodied existence. Christ claims our created masculinity reflected in our body. He claims our created femininity. He claims marriage and the sexual union of marriage. He claims the fruit of that sexual union, our children. All of this earthy, messy stuff of our embodied lives, it all belongs to Jesus now. And so it is part, all of this embodied stuff is part of our spiritual wrestling with these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I know that is a lot to absorb, beloved. We must absorb it. It's just Christianity. We must understand this. Now today I want to speak about sexuality and marriage, and the next time I want to talk about children and parenting. And today what I want to do is just explore two things. Just two things. The first thing I'd like to explore in this, to modern ears, odd little text, I'd like to explore at first that Paul's instructions here apply, Paul's instructions here apply a gender difference that far exceeds marriage. Paul is applying in these verses a gender difference that's far bigger than marriage. Why would I say that? Paul instructs husbands and wives differently here because men and women are different. He instructs husbands and wives differently here because men and women are different. There is no such thing for the Apostle Paul as a female husband or a male wife. There's no such thing. In fact, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11, you could find this if you looked at it later. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul instructs husbands and wives differently, explicitly on the grounds that God created man and woman differently. He explicitly ties these different instructions to husbands and wives to the fact that God created men and women differently. So what I'm saying is that marriage, these marriage instructions, are just one particular application of manhood and womanhood, just one, which means that the unique glories of manhood and womanhood, they manifest, beloved, throughout our embodied lives, whether or not God ever calls you to marriage. Your manhood, if you're a man, your womanhood, if you're a woman, it is, that glory is going to manifest throughout your embodied life, even if you never are called by God to marry. You are not less of a man or a woman if you do not marry at all. And in fact, I would go further uh, by application of that. You are not less of a man or a woman if you never experience sexual activity. Sexual activity absolutely does not define your manliness. It absolutely does not define your femininity. It merely expresses those things if God calls you to marriage. 
the unique createdness that, is, that Jesus restores, the unique createdness that a man brings to marriage, and he brings something unique to marriage as a man, he brings that to all of his callings in the world, not just to a marriage. And for a woman, the unique createdness of her femininity that she might bring to marriage if Jesus calls her to that, she brings that to every calling that Jesus gives her in the world. I think I can suggest a little more about this just as an invitation to further conversation, although what I'm about to say, you're perfectly free to, you know, to take, take what's meat, throw out, the bon- throw out the bones. I think we could say about manhood and womanhood, a little more particularly, that masculinity uniquely manifests in what we could call works of husbandry. See, the old word husbanding wasn't about marriage. It was about tilling and tending gardens and building things, planting and building and then guarding what had been planted and built. And it is not an accident that throughout history, much of the agricultural life of humans and much of the architectural building of humans and much of the military activity of humans has fallen to men. They are even biologically in many ways built for it, but there's something, I mean, a woman can certainly participate in those things, and many women do, but there is something uniquely manly about the works of husbanding, tilling and tending and planting and, and, and constructing and guarding. That's, that's, manhood manifests uniquely there. And, and socially, of course, men, their manliness uniquely manifests in relationships that look like the way a son relates or in fatherly ways of relating or brotherly ways of relating. Manhood uniquely reflect, is re- reflected in those ways. And likewise with femininity. Femininity uniquely manifests, I, I would, this is my term, uh, it uniquely manifests in what I've come to call the, the genius of home craft. And I don't please, please don't throw tomatoes. I'm not talking about a 1950s stereotype here of the, you know, the sweet little housewife. When I talk about home craft and, uh, and how a woman her femininity uniquely reflects in that. Girls, your body is a home. Your very body is a home. A man can never say that. And girls, the reason our culture hates that is because our culture is stupid. Your body is a home. But I'm not just talking about a home for a baby, although that is one way of a woman can practice home craft. It's very interesting to me that when God describes the wisdom by which he built the cosmos, He describes her as a lady. God's lady wisdom, we are told, built the cosmos, but he did not just build a cosmos by his wisdom. He made it a home, a place that was good to be in, a place full of life and light and love. Women make the life that is worth building, that is worth fighting for, It is not at all unusual for a man to say, this is what needs to be done, and for a woman to say, but this is how it's going to affect people. Because the woman has a a unique sense of home craft and the things that make life a home. And of course, women socially uniquely manifest themselves in relations of daughterliness and motherliness and sisterhood. And so what I'm saying here is that manly fruitfulness does not depend on any specific calling in a man's life, including marriage. And womanly fruitfulness absolutely does not depend on any specific calling, including marriage. The manly virtues and skills that make a man fruitful as a husband and father will make him fruitful everywhere. And a woman's virtues and skills that make her a fruitful wife and mother would make her a fruitful woman anywhere. And I think that acknowledging that would help eliminate the tension 
that many Christians feel today between a call to serve Christ in marriage versus a call to serve Christ apart from marriage. And sometimes churches are so, so busy exalting marriage that people that aren't married feel like they're somehow second class. Or some people are so into like the whole you know, single and serving Jesus thing that marriage seems like kind of a, a real drag. But the reality is every Christian is called to serve apart from marriage. You weren't born married. Every Christian serves Christ apart from marriage. Some Christians serve Christ in marriage, as he calls them to that, but whether it is that married or unmarried, each of these callings offers unique opportunities for manly, womanly fruitfulness. Paul's instructions here apply a gender difference that far exceeds marriage. Second thing I'd like to explore is that Paul's instructions here are crucial to the God-ordained mission of marriage. They're crucial to the God-ordained mission of marriage. 21st century Christians, I believe, desperately need to recover the conviction that marriage is a mission. You cannot even get out of Genesis 1 in the Bible without seeing this. God gets a, puts a couple together, be fruitful, multiply, fill the world, subdue it, take dominion. And I'd like you to notice something very important. The mission of marriage is not to make each other happy. Can I just say that again, just to be, you know, poking the eye a little bit? The mission of marriage is not to make you happy. Marriage can sometimes be very, very happy, but that is not the mission of marriage. And it is interesting in the United States to notice the sharp statistical drop-off in marriages, and it is frightening. I think we've dropped from 37% of the population married with kids to 16% in like 35 years. The sharp decline in marriage in the United States shows you something important, that once people stop believing in the mission of marriage, they just stop marrying. Because the reality is, if your relationship is about making the two of you happy, you don't need to marry. You can just pleasure each other in whatever ways you happen to find pleasurable and not have the headache of marriage. And the beautiful thing about this arrangement is that if at some point you decide you cannot make each other happy anymore, you can just run on and find happiness elsewhere without the headache of a divorce. If there's no mission, there's no real reason to marry. But, the, but marriage is a mission. Can I ask you something? Why did God say it was not good for Adam to be alone? I'll give you a hint. It was not because Adam was unhappy. There is not a shred of evidence anywhere in Genesis that Adam was unhappy before God brought Eve to him. The reason it was not good, God said it was not good for Adam to be alone, is that Adam could not form and fill the world as God had called him to. He could not be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion, starting with the garden. He couldn't do any of that alone. He was like a head with no body. Hearing God's call, seeing what God wanted him to do, like a head, but lacking the members to do it. And so from his body, what did God do? God formed a woman, the partner that he needed, to fulfill this mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the world, subdue it. And now as one person, the Bible says one flesh, head and body together, Adam and Eve could now build in the world, they and their offspring could build the micro-kingdoms of God's macro-kingdom. They could go and establish together, in a way neither one could alone, these realms of loving dominion and loving communion, of economic fruitfulness and social fruitfulness. That's the mission of marriage. That's the mission of marriage. And it's interesting that the near evaporation of that mission 
a vision for fruitful, biologically, socially, even economically fruitful households undergirding fruitful commonwealths, the evaporation of that mission. I don't know of any young people today who necessarily instinctively think that way about marriage, but that evaporation has made it very, very hard to read a text like this and talk about marriage roles. Because here's the thing, if you've got a guy and a girl, they fall in love and they're gazing lovingly in each other's eyes and this entire relationship is about making them happy, does it make a shred of sense to suddenly tell the guy you're the head and tell the, world, the girl she's got to submit to him? That's just weird. But let's back up. Look at your text. Where are Adam and Eve in these few verses? In what verse do we find Adam and Eve? The quote in verse, verse 31 so a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. That is a quote from Genesis 2. It's a quote from the story, the marriage story, of Adam and Eve. And in verse 32, Paul says that one flesh union and mission of the first couple, Adam and Eve, he says in verse 32, was a shadow. It was a kind of foreshadowing of something that God did not unveil. It remained a mystery, and God did not unveil this greater thing until millennia later, that first couple were a kind of shadow or picture or figure or type of a far greater Adam and his bride, this head who is Christ, and his body, the church. So the husband and wife in, crea in the creation story, they are foreshadowing the mission of this much greater head and this much greater body in what the Bible sometimes calls the new creation, the restoration of all things in Christ. And it's that new creation that is what the whole letter of Ephesians is about. If you read Paul carefully, from the very beginning back in verse, uh, chapter 1, he told us that what he's writing about is God putting all things back together in Christ. God has this master plan to put everything back together through Jesus. He sent Christ to head up this new creation, this macro kingdom of grace in which, in, in chapter 1, he said the harmony of heaven and earth will be restored. And in chapter 2, he says all people, Jew and Gentile, they have all been reconciled to God and to each other in one body. Jesus heads up this one-making. And now, Paul, throughout the letter, he says, so we Christians, we've got this new self. We are with Christ in his mission. We're with him in this new creation thing that he's doing, restoring and reconciling and putting things back together. We are the body in which and through which our head fulfills his mission as the greater Adam, which is why Paul says in Ephesians that our life together in the body matters so much. The way we live together as Christians matters so much because we're the body of our head. Now, in this text, Paul shows us that one of the micro-kingdoms of the macro kingdom of Jesus is the Christian household. And here's the controversial thing, but it's what he says. In these Christian households, these little micro kingdoms of Christ's macro kingdom, God calls the, the husband to be a micro Christ and he calls the wife to be a micro church. The husband is to direct this household toward kingdom fruitfulness in obedience to Jesus. He is to direct the household towards being a place that is biologically fruitful, if God allows that. A place that is relationally fruitful, that looks like the church written small. 
full of love and grace and mercy and wisdom, to be a place that is economically fruitful, that has resources to give and bless other people, that the husband is to lead and guide the household toward what the high king wants, and the wife is to support and follow as his partner and queen. She is to support and follow, and in in the language uses, submit herself in that mission with her husband to fulfill that calling. And then the husband is told, as he is guiding the household and his wife is following him in this mission, he is to look out in every way for her well-being. He is to provide vision for the household. What does the king want, the high king want? And he is to provide provision for his wife in every way. And the fruit of a husband and wife that are working together like that will be a household that is one a household that is acting as one, not pulling in different directions. Listen, I do a ton of marriage counseling. It has been probably the most unpleasant part of my entire pastoral ministry, although it's very necessary. And this is what you see in households that are not submitting to Jesus. The husband and wife are pulling in different directions, sometimes in open hostility to each other. But this is a very different picture. This is like Christ and his church, the head and the body, the husband and wife, one in the mission toward kingdom fruitfulness. And the husband can direct the household well because his wife is with him. And the wife can be with her husband well because he is for her. And to be honest, if you have any discussion of marriage roles that does not have that context, it's probably going to get weird. That's the context. That's the mission. Now let me wrap up then with that vision before us with some practical points of focus in marriage. First thing I'd offer as a practical point of focus in a marriage that works like this. It's going to sound oh so churchy, but please, it's not churchy. Keep your marriage centered on Christ, like for real. (laughs) And this is what I mean. Keeping your marriage centered on Christ, guess what that means? It means Jesus is Lord of your marriage. Neither of you is. I watch husbands and wives come apart, and one of them is trying to be Lord. Usually both of them are trying to be, neither of you is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and that when you really get that as a husband and wife, it promotes, number one, the humility and also just the sense of humor (laughs) that is so necessary to healthy relationships. It just kind of shrinks you down to an appropriate size. You are just not all that, and you can kind of let go of trying to be in charge and be in control and rule the other person. You can just let that go because Jesus is Lord, and here's the other thing Jesus is Lord means. It means you need to obey him, and you will be blessed if you obey Jesus. Jesus says to you wives, submit to your husband. Jesus says to you husbands, you love your wife the way I've loved my church. That's a command. And so what that means, wives, is this. You make it easy for your husband to lead. You make it easy for him to lead. That's what submission means. It means you help him develop the vision for the household. What does Jesus want? You help him with that. And you follow that vision. It's interesting to me, I sometimes hear wives that are frustrated by their apathetic, lazy, sit-on-the-couch-don't-do-jack husbands, and they just, they'll say things like, I just want my husband to lead, and sometimes they, I'm like, yeah, I can see why. But sometimes when I hear Christian wives say, I want my husband to lead, what I really hear is this, I want my husband to do what I want without my having to tell him. That is not following a husband. Following a husband is helping him develop the vision that God wants for this household, and then you follow that as he sets the pace. And husbands, as much as your wife's to make it easy for you to lead, you make it easy for her to follow. 
She is the queen of your realm. You treat her like that. As you guide the realm of your household towards what the high king wants, not what you want, what the high king wants, she is your queen. And you are to honor her as your friend, as your partner, as your co-worker, as your rib. One old Puritan writer said, God didn't take the woman from the head of man to rule over him or take him from the feet of man to walk on. He took her from the rib to be at his side as his queen. You treat her like that. You love her like Jesus loves the church. You serve her. You lay down your life for her the way Jesus loves the church. You make it easy for her to follow. Keep your marriage centered on Christ doesn't just mean Jesus is Lord. It means he's also the Savior, and that means that both of you are under grace. It means Husband, wife, you are loved by Jesus. That is so much more important than whether your spouse loves you. You're loved. Husband, you are loved. Wife, you are loved. You're under grace. Jesus is your Savior. And you can learn to treat each other that way. My wife, my husband, you too are under grace. And that means you can just forgive, 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 forgive 70 times 7. Keep your marriage centered on Christ. Second thing, and on Long Island, I think this might be a little bit of a thing we need to really pay attention to. Keep your marriage connected to the church. I see family and church in competition often on Long Island. You need to keep your household, your marriage connected to the church. Your marriage needs the church, and the church needs your marriage. Men need men to stir them up to manly love and good deeds. Women need women to stir them up to womanly love and good deeds. Your marriage needs the body of Christ and the body of Christ needs the fruit of your marriage. Needs what you two have to offer as a household unit. I believe that we need to renounce household independence in the body of Christ. I'm not saying anything weird like you should give all your money to the church. That's not what I'm saying at all. You have a unique household. It's your household. I'm saying there should be no spirit of we're off doing our own thing and the church is an afterthought. We need to renounce household independence in the body of Christ and find ways in the body of Christ to resource and strengthen each other in our marriages and household life. That is a biblical calling. Your micro kingdom is part of a macro kingdom. Keep your marriage connected to the church. Build those relationships. The last thing I'll say, might sound really weird, don't be selfish with your sex. Married couples, don't be selfish with your sex. What on earth do I mean? First, unless God decides otherwise, your sexual union is to bring life into this world. That is what it is for. Your sexual union is to bring life into the world. Your sexual union is a gift from God through which you are to give the gift of life to the body of Christ and to the world, not just having children but raising them. That is a calling of sexuality for Christian couples, unless God prohibits it. But there's something else between the two of you about not being selfish with your sex. Wives, one way to tell your husband that you are really with him, to honor him, to encourage him, to strengthen him, is to give yourself to him sexually. It is very easy for a wife, dare I say, especially one who knows her husband because he's a Christian can't run off and cheat with somebody else. It is very easy for a wife to emasculate a man or manipulate a man in sexual relationship in a marriage. I think this is a far too prevalent sin among some Christian wives is using, sometimes withholding sexuality as a way of manipulating. There's a perfectly 
legitimate place for withholding sexuality, but not in a way that tears him down. Always, even in that, finding a way to assure him, I'm with you, I want you, I honor you, I support you. And husbands, one way to show your wife that you are truly for her is to honor her and to cherish her sexually. To let her know in your tenderness and in your strength how much you desire her and delight in her and her alone. Don't be selfish with your sex. Now we have remaining the issue of how this godly manliness and womanliness and this unified mission in the body is to be carried down through generations so that God is glorified in all generations. But that, we'll wait till next week. Father, bless these things to our body life as men and women. Bless our marriages. Bless the fruit of these marriages. Bless us with a thousand generations of your church. You have promised you will build your church. Do it in this way. We ask for Jesus' glory as our head. Amen.